So, so we're already starting over here a little bit before the panel, but uh, doing the VGBS video game bullshit slash Hagen's Alley Books podcast, and we got the limited run games mastermind himself with me. Should be really fucking fun and crazy. <laughs> yeah, stoked, man. Jeff's the co-host. Staying back in Chicago. We're here, ran into each other, happy to be here. And it'll be interesting to see how crazy this picks up with all this bass that's going on. Yeah, I know. This is rock. I thought we were going to throw on a rock concert right now. The Hagen's Alley Books Podcast, where we're going to do an interview with Ben. We're going to talk about video game collecting then and now, and go over all the different nuances. And I figure that's right up your alley. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a little bit up my alley. It's a little bit. We do. we do a little bit of the, of the, the modern day collecting, I'd People say. might collect limited run games a little bit. And it should be really okay. interesting to see uh, see where the, uh, the bullshit takes us. Yeah, yeah. So you know if they just turn us up. A little bit louder there, Ben. All right, so... Gotta eat the mic. So I'm Jeffrey Wittenhagen. I have nine books published on retro gaming. The one you can see up here on the table is the complete SNES, the definitive edition, 630-page, full-color book on everything on the Super Nintendo. But I collect for every system. I like playing video games. The man knows his stuff. I was just got lost over at the booth and almost missed the panel because I was digging into what you had, man. It's crazy. <laughs> I was like, hey, Ben, we, we, we got to go uh, record the uh, the panel here. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I thought it was in like, a quiet little room, but here we are. This big open hall like, here. This yeah. giant open hall. Which we're at the end of the convention, so the people are coming to hang out and listen to us uh, shoot the shit about some, uh, some yeah. games and some collecting. So first of all, Ben, tell everybody about you. And what you currently do, I think everybody might know about limited run games. Yeah, there's actually, there's not, there's, every time we come to these, I'm always blown away, and it's really cool to meet people that haven't heard of us, man. It's, it's nice to tell the story. Um, but yeah, my name's Ben Moore. I'm a CFO for uh, limited run games. <clears throat> Most people usually know Josh and Douglas are usually <laughs> the ones that are up doing this kind of thing. I, I've been there behind the scenes guy, helping grow the company and scale yeah. up, keep the lights on, and, and kind of build our operation, but... Um, man, it's, a, it's been an intense environment, and like, uh, I kind of help support them just to make sure they've got all the time that they need to make sure every product that we put out is high quality, man, because collectors have that discerning eye. Oh, they definitely have the discerning eye. Yeah. It's like, one of the hardest parts for me is that when I start doing these giant books, is that this weighs is like five to six pounds. This thing you can like bludgeon people with it. Like, you can literally <laughs> like knock people out of the book. And when you ship it, it gets dinged up because the postal service will just like because it weighs so much, dude. The postal <laughs> service. Oh my, oh my goodness. God, oh my goodness. And so like I completely get the discerning eye that you're talking about with collectors, man. Um, yeah, man. We got we got caught out real hard early on. We had uh, we tried some fulfillment places. The best solution was to bring it in house, man. Nobody takes care of stuff like collectors themselves, you know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it's the weirdest thing because. My business has gotten so big to the point where I can't house my books in my garage anymore. My wife won't let me keep them in the house anymore. <laughs> and it's to the point now where I have to use a warehouse for fulfillment. So I literally have to get insurance on every book that I ship out because of that. Like, yeah, it's, it's oh, ridiculous. Because no. I'll put, like, multiple wraps of bubble wrap because I'm a collector. Like, I want my stuff mint, so I want everybody else to get their stuff mint. 
and it's like it's crazy when you see some of the packages that people get. It's it's ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. No, people don't play, man. We've got a pretty ferocious return ball, so we got a great customer support team. But you got to take care of the collectors, dude. They they said that discerning eye. I was gonna say, I think we actually went back and reprint uh, one of our releases, Super Hydra. We did like the old school Super Nintendo box. Yeah. There was an original screenshot of the prototype, and somebody thought that the yellow dots on the right side wasn't the correct count. It was like we had one less than was on the original, so we actually went back and reprinted. Because of one got, dot. Because of one dot. Yeah, it's pretty wild, man. But I mean, the thing was, though, that's the attention to detail, what you guys do yeah. over everybody else, because, so the thing is, is that. I've been doing retro gaming books. I started before the boom, and then, you know, other people did books and brought tons of people into collecting books. You guys did your limited run right before the boom. You created the boom, and now there's tons of other companies doing limited releases. Yeah, so what yeah. do you feel about the other companies doing the same type of deal? So, you know, it's, this industry is small enough that, you know, it's always better to make friends than enemies. I think it's great to see, like, uh, a lot of support behind getting more physical anything out there. Preservation is yep. a big thing on the shift to digital. Um, so honestly for us, it's just the volume of stuff coming out of our company. We've been trying to pull it back a little because we know it's high speed. Uh -huh. It's great if we don't have room in our schedule for a death that comes with the title. So we're actually happy to have these other options and like we'll, we'll recommend someone like, you know, like, uh, um, like Super Rare Games to somebody recently on the Switch side. And, and Super Rare seems like they're doing some really cool stuff just like you guys are doing. Yeah, yeah. And we actually, we know them through Curve Digital. Um, so yeah. like over in the UK, they've got a really tight knit community there. And like Curve Digital put us on them pretty early on. I believe the guy that runs it is actually the son of one of the guys that run Curve Digital. Oh, really? There. Yeah, yeah. That's really George cool. George um, But yeah, yeah. So like as far as we're concerned, like, you know, there's plenty of space for everybody. Like we're not trying to put anybody out. Yeah. Um, the other places I think are doing a good job too. Uh, we're... Best form of flattery, I think. I mean, we'll, uh, I think that when we started doing this, um, the demand is out there. We found the market, and the best to us is flattering to see other people want to kind of replicate that and help build that 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 market. Absolutely, and like like in my realm of gaming books, it's like we all the different authors, we all kind of collaborate together and help each other out, yeah. and it's super cool. It's like. Well, if somebody else has a book and it's super popular, well, there can never be enough books on the Nintendo or the Super Nintendo or the Sega Genesis. I'll take 20 books on the system. It'd be amazing because I'm going to buy them and read them too. Like, I'm just a passionate gamer like everybody else. I just know what I like, so I made the book in my own, like, mindset, like my own madness. Yeah, you know, it's really cool to see, like, and meet different types of collectors at these events, because I think everybody that gets into it is in it for different reasons, but yeah, um, one of the coolest things for me, like, when I look at, like, kind of older stuff and talk to other collectors, is the nostalgic factor. As soon as I cracked open your book and started flipping through, I mean, there's, like, titles in there. I didn't even remember that I played it until I saw it in the book, and I was like, oh, my God, I remember this game. Yeah, exactly, and you were like, I didn't realize that I played that many Super Nintendo games back in the day. Yeah, 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 it's probably a reminder of that, man. I probably should have spent a little more time outdoors when I was a kid, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> you and all of us, really. Yeah. <laughs> and the, the thing is, with that nostalgia factor, I, I really do think that's something you guys are knocking out of the park with Limited Run. It's like those River City Ransom Melee and Double Dragon 4 Nintendo boxes that look like the original NES box layout, and then you get all the different packings that come with it. But it, like, really hits... 
that nostalgic itch yeah, that a lot yeah. of us have. And it's where it's really cool because you got you can get the game, you get the physical game, which is really the main point. Right. Is that we're getting these digital games that would give what I call the Scott Pilgrim effect, if you know what that means. Oh, absolutely. You have Scott so Pilgrim versus the world for the Xbox 360, no longer available. You can't play it because they no longer have the license. Well, if limited run games existed back then, guess what? We would all have a copy of Scott Pilgrim vs. the World that we could play forever. On that note, it's a long shot, but we're still fighting to see what we can do about that. That's uh -oh. been ongoing for about six or eight months now. If anybody can do it, hopefully your reach is long enough. To we'll see. To People still like saying no to us sometimes. We still get said no to quite frequently. <laughs> well, I mean, it's always about finding that one version that'll say yes to make right. something happen. And then you have something cool for history. Yeah. So, but hitting the nostalgic itch is, I think, what's really cool about going with it. I was talking with you about, uh, was it Thimbleweed Park? Yeah. And, like, their first Switch release came in, like, it looks like an old-school PC box. Even yeah. with a sticker that looks like the old stickers you had with the PC box. It's like, I don't even want to open that thing. It's so cool. Yeah, you know, that's always a catch-22. It's, uh, like, it's flattering that people want to keep stuff sealed, keep on the shelf. I know there's collectors out there that want to keep it pristine. But I love hearing people open it up because we spend so much time. One of the most fun things for us is like yeah. brainstorming on what goes into the box. Um, and so it's, it's nice to know what's in there, but it's really cool when you pull it out. And see well, exactly. And I've always been a collector to play more than a collector to keep. And I, and I don't sell games. Like if you ever come to my booth, it's just my books. It's just me up on the, on the table. Well, you keep all your games since your books are taking up all your space. Good God, we got to use like a warehouse, Jeff. I wouldn't, I wouldn't even have a, have a room. Yeah, like, my books are in the warehouse. My games are in the game. <laughs> like, and the thing is, is that like I'm more of a customizer, too. So like I went around. I saw one of the guys. He's an artist. He had a Adventures of Lolo little figure yeah. that he hand-painted. And I'm like, oh, that's going to look really cool in front of my Adventures of Lolo 3 NES box game. I'm going to have, like, figures sitting right there. And, like, my daughter can play with it with the Amiibos because it's about the same size. Right. But it's like, a, who would know that it's Adventures of Lolo besides for, like, a hardcore Nintendo collector at one of these conventions? Like, we all know what that is. Oh, yeah. That's the cool thing about these things. I mean, I, it's just cool, like, for, for me personally, because I've always been an avid gamer, and yeah. I grew up with games, and I, I kept some good stuff, but I, I never really got into big collecting and until I was working with Josh and Douglas, because they're true collectors. They've been doing it for years. <laughs> um, and it's, it's just really cool to see, like, how every single collector has their own thing. Um, like, whenever Josh is upset at the office, the way he calms himself down, he'll go and reorganize his collection, and that's, like, his thing. Really? Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's he's a pretty clean guy. Like, he doesn't go have like a like a glass of whiskey or scotch like some people. He'll still lay reorganize his collection. That's how he comes himself down. <laughs> he goes there and realphabetizes it, then goes by yeah, developer yeah. and then by publisher and then reorganizes it again. At first, I was concerned. First time I ever saw it, I thought it was like beautiful mining, like Russell Crowe over there. I was like, you okay, man? He might. Is everything okay? Yeah. <laughs> no, that's a that's a classic thing though to talk about. It's like the differences of how people collect versus how they calm down. I think. All of us that collect games have a bit of OCD in a different way. And I'm, I'm OCD to a fault because you check out my books. Everything is perfectly organized within the book. And honestly, like, it's really cool to be able to find something that calms you down yeah. when it comes time when you get stressed out. You don't have to lead to, like, just partying it out. Did you get a chance to walk the floor much here? Um, yeah. I've walked the floor a little bit, yeah. Okay. What's yeah, like, yeah. What, what was like the hidden gems? Did you find any like real hidden gems out there? What you see? So, I did see one person came by my table, and they came by with a myriad 6-in-1. So, the Keltron 6-in-1 is a pretty rare unlicensed NES game. 
the Myriad bought out Keltron and got their stock and slapped their sticker on the cartridge, and there's only a few, and they, they numbered them. There's only a few in existence, and he, there was a collector who had a Myriad sectional on yesterday they showed me, and I'm like, it's a legit Myriad, too. I'm like, holy cow. That's wild. Yeah, I've heard there's some pretty good stuff out there this one, man. I was kind of yeah. shocked to hear what was said on the board. Um, but yeah, it's so crazy. Like, again, that attention to detail, things like numbering, it's wild that, like, one sticker, like, one change in brand. Yeah, yeah. It completely changes it in the eyes of so many collectors. Well, and I mean, that's what you got your stadium events where it's literally right. track and field, but the original release. And so many people want it because it was an official release in stores. And to me, it's more about playing everything than right. collecting rare stuff. Right. Yeah, I, I like to have everything playable. So, I mean, and honestly, one of the rare low print games is the homebrew that I brought because I only made 120 of them. And it's an RPG where you collect Nintendo games in the game. And because it's such a low print, like, and that game cannot be bootlegged and played on an emulator because of the way that the programmer made it. Right. He used four-way scroll mapping, which emulators don't support. So really, it's only playable in an NES. And there's only 120 copies. And that's wild. That's like, for me being a playable one, like, that is the ultimate thing for me to release that I would hate as a collector. Like, I would be mad at people like me because it's like, I can't afford to do NES games because it's right. expensive to do NES tech, especially with a specialized board that that requires. Now, you guys that do homebrews blow my mind, man. That's, uh, that's a labor of love. Like, yeah. in the books, the fact that you have all those in there, for one, that's hard to track down all the homebrews that are out there. But They're impossible. It's great to see because, like, I think I busted it open, and the first thing I saw was, like, I think I was standing right there with me in the booth, Resident Evil on NES. Yep. <laughs> yeah, and that was, like, a, to go and do this. that's, like, aftermarket Chinese bootleg game. Right. That's a full recreation of the original Resident Evil on 8-bit Nintendo, and it plays really well. Like, I, it's crazy to me that people make such games that Final Fantasy VII, um, Legend of Zelda, A Link to the Past, all on the Nintendo Famicom, the NES, 8-bit. And it's like, people just make all of that stuff. And it's yeah. like, and the thing is, is that those aftermarket games are still created by somebody after the Nintendo was done. They're still kind of homebrew, even though it's, more mass-produced and higher, for sure. It's a different realm, because how I define homebrew is by passionate gamers and collectors and programmers that make the games as a labor of love. You always think of the single programmer in their basement making the game. Yeah, the, the whole homebrew thing is pretty new for me, so like, how do you typically plug into that? Like, if you're interested, like, where is the first place that you would want to look to try and get copies or something like that? So... Depends on the system. So for the NES, you would want to go to Nest Dev forums or Nintendo Age, uh -huh. and that'll get you into finding out about them. My book has them all, so that's a, actually a great place to start because it's in my book. I literally had to go to random websites and forums and, and pull the games that exist from people's sites because nobody, there's no database for everything. Right. But, like, you can go to the forums on those websites. Atari Age has the Atari 2600 through 7800 homebrews there, readily available. Um, there's a Sega forum that you can go to um, to get the Sega Genesis homebrews. Super Nintendo doesn't really have a homebrew community. There's only 20 or so homebrews for the Super Nintendo. Um, but things are getting bigger, and companies are getting more 
like around making them. Like for example, Mega Cat Studios and Retrotainment Games. They're not really homebrew anymore. Collector Vision Games with Game Straight One. They're not really homebrew anymore because it's multiple talented developers, musicians, artists coming together and making the game, kind of yeah. like Konami did back it's, in the it's day. A, it, that's what it, what it seems like. What's intriguing is seeing these products coming out. It's yeah. almost like an actual full-scale development title. They are, and yeah. it's like so. In my book, I would put a heart or a half heart from Zelda next to the games that I really liked and really connected with me. And in the homebrew one, I did full hearts for ones that feel like an NES release, half hearts that are more like an Atari style high score run, something that would be cool to play. And those would be the ones that I would focus on if you were going to start a homebrew collection. But the interesting thing is, is that like, those new developers don't really like calling it homebrew because they're not just a single dude making a game on the system anymore. It's yeah. now a collaboration of multiple people and like almost like aftermarket kind of fits them more or indie devs or like it's interesting because even indie devs don't like be calling indie anymore. Yeah, yeah, really. It's like, it's like a, it was like cool and hip there for a while and then now people want to be like double A or they want to be single. We classify it as like somewhere in the game industry it feels well, like. I think how it works, because collecting goes in ebbs and flows, and you see prices fluctuate and all that. I think it's like as things get bigger, and collecting gets more popular, and more people make homebrews, and more people make indie games, I think it's going to be a new classification that they're going to want to be called to kind of stand out. Because the hardest thing for people, especially if you think about Steam developers, is standing out in the slew and the... You know, ocean of yeah. programmers it's such out there. a deep uh, effort out there. Like, yeah. how you stand out in the current marketplace, it, it's really tough. It's, it would like it would be like you get with a certain company that might do physical releases of their game. <laughs> that would help them stand out. Right. Then now you're part of something. I mean, in all actuality, what Limited Run or the other game companies do is now you have a pedestal. It's kind of what the Switch had for a while, right. where you put your Steam game on the Switch, and now all of a sudden you're in a new marketplace that people are hungry for new games, and you're on a Nintendo console. Yeah, and it's, it's really cool to see devs because like you see like the entire ecosystem change every time there's a, a like a new platform to come out because it's that same process every time. Yeah, if you're one of the early ones in, then it's like an immediate boost for visibility. Exactly. Like you can see already on Switch, it feels like that market is just getting really, really, really not necessarily crowded, but you cannot just go in there and find stuff easily anymore. Yeah, I mean, there was a while there where I would like every couple days go through and like look through the new games and kind of favorite the ones that were my favorites on the Switch. And now it's like, there's too many. Yeah. And so, and it's the same thing with collecting limited run games, because guess what? I had to stop pulling the trigger on every release y'all did for the PS4, because there's so many games now, and there's so much time that I don't have to play new games, because I'm making books and playing retro games on it. So it's like, the Switch right now, though, you have a few. So I'm able to keep up and buy the next one. Yeah, it's uh, it was kind of a catch twenty two. So like back oh, it when, is. when we first started, it's like we just we didn't see how much demand was out there for something like this, and it, we're constantly getting our eyes open because it seems like there's a growing demand and there's just new collectors every day stepping in, which is a good thing because I thought for sure that we had like a specific and, and try like demographic. I thought like but now we see young kids that are getting into game collecting and like time. where are they picking that up from? That's really, really cool to see. Well you know where they're picking it up from is the rest of us yeah. and coming to these conventions and seeing how passionate we are and YouTube 
and all the exciting and talented YouTubers that are talking about their collections and the rare nuances and their history, their stories, and right. like every single aspect connects with somebody differently. And I think that like the new games, especially where the Switch is going with all the new collecting, I think that's really going to be something that connects with people on a different level. Yeah. Because it's more retro based. Well, and I see like it's very youth oriented. I see a bunch of young kids playing the Switch. Like, yeah. That's always like seems like the platform of choice for kids like ten and under, and like already like I didn't even know one of my friends' seven year old son was a collector, and all of a sudden he's like hungry for Switch titles, and you can't <laughs> get enough. You always ask as soon as we get stuff in, and we can send it to him. It's crazy. It's like that's crazy too because my daughter's six and she plays the Switch as well, and you know that's why Nintendo always has that. Oh, it's the kiddie system, right? And it's interesting, but it's like they do market it smartly toward children. Yeah. And, but the thing is, is that I grew up on it when I was a child, yeah. and it's a, all those different Donkey Kong, Link, Mario, Samus, everything from that generation connects with me on a different level. Right, and it's just like seeing Dragon Quest, I think I said in there, like, was my first intro to video games period after the Atari. Yeah. I, I used to sit and watch my dad play for like several hours at a time, and that was kind of how we did our hangout thing when I was like really young. And ever since that stuck in my mind, and that put me on the track where I always associate like home comfort, all the rest of games. Yeah, and it's an interesting thing too because, like, you have your own story on the Nintendo. I got my own story because I got my Dragon Warrior from the Nintendo Power subscription when they gave it away free with Dragon. They give Dragon Warrior free with your first year subscription just to get in more subscriptions for the system. And it's it's really crazy though because. Like, my parents used that as an excuse to double dip on Christmas and my birthday. So my birthday, I got the Nintendo Power subscription. And then for Christmas, oh, here's Dragon Warrior. I'm like, oh, an RPG. And it's like, didn't, I didn't know that it came free with the system at the time. Oh, man, they played you good. They, they always did it good. It was yeah. a classic, though. Man, I miss those days. I remember I would, like, fall asleep in, like, piles of Nintendo Power when I was a kid. Piles. Piles. It was just like a rat nest of Nintendo and gaming magazines. That was my... My sleeping that, was, that was the Shangri-La back in the day. And it, it was interesting, too, because I got my Nintendo Powers out of order. So I got the... I started with the Star Tropics right. issue. And then later on, they sent me Mega Man 3, which came out after, or before it. But they sent it to me after Star Tropics came out. So I got them out of order somehow from Nintendo. Like, it's really crazy. Like, <laughs> that they sent them to me out of order back in the day. Yeah, somebody probably got in trouble for that. <laughs> maybe, maybe they did. Uh, or maybe there's just a backlog or something where they had extra magazines and they just send them to people as a bonus. Yeah. And that's the one thing, too, when you have extra stock of stuff and there's really nowhere else to take them. They didn't have gaming conventions like we have here now. Yeah, no, this uh, convention circuit's really cool. I think it's, uh, it's always neat. It's one of the best things about the industry and the collectors in sure. general is it's always like a tight-knit community. Yeah. I, I always see people trying to make friends on enemies, which is usually a good thing. Oh, yeah, it's, it's super fun coming to the conventions, hanging out. Yeah. So I had an interesting question from somebody who may or may not be sitting right in the front row. What is a easier version of Mega Man for beginners to start with? Because he said he got into Mega Man 1 and 2, and it was a little bit of a hard, a hard start. But my answer was, well, back in the day when I had Mega Man 2, it was my only game for the weekend, so I had to play it until I beat the damn thing. So I got good through dying a million times. Yeah. But, like, I mean, you have limited run games. You've seen action platformers and stuff like that, too. Like, 
my thoughts were like, well, you can go to some of the other games where you constantly die and continue. Yeah. I mean, you have your NES Battle Kids, which is a homebrew game that are kind of a different way to play the game. But, like, do you know of any action platformer? Yeah, so, like, one I think that's pretty friendly and it's got a lot of the same elements is, like, of all things, it's not quite the same as a shooter, but, like, Sean series, I think, is a really good soft engine uh-huh. awesome. Yeah. That's an awesome series to think about. Yeah, yeah, Wave 4 does a really great job on action platformers. The art's appealing, um, yeah. and the design is good, which is important, but it's not at a difficulty level of, like, some of those more hardcore titles. They're a little softer on the intro. And now that you mentioned Shantae, he just piqued my memory. And so, Mighty Gunvolt Burst on the 3DS and the Switch. Um, that game is like Mega Man. It actually has the guy from Mighty Number no. 9 back in it, but it's oh, 8-bit, 16-bit yeah. style graphics on it. The Burst version. But you also have Mighty, Mighty Gunvolt, which is like more of a new school style art. But the first one has, like, the 8-bit aesthetic to it. So there's, like, one game that's up and coming that I'm really excited about called The Messenger. Uh, Devolver's doing it's been a lot of shows. And they yeah. do this cool thing where you switch between the 8 and the 16-bit and flip box back and forth. Really? Um, as you're going through the game. And, like, I, I really dig, like, how that's become, like, a cool hook. So, like, on the... Um, uh, Wonder Boy, like when they did the remaster on that, when you, you get, switch and you get flip school. it, yeah, and yeah. jump it right back to the original suit Sega Master System graphics. Yeah, I, I love the like the nostalgia stuff when you play like the old style like eight bit stuff, but then you can like kick your eyes back, get a little tired. You're like, okay, come on to see like a little more polished stuff, like a little more modern version of the Well, that was interesting too because you know I grew up with that eight bit aesthetic, and Wonder Boy was done so well. The art style was so graphically pleasing right. on the redo. That I play it right in the HD mode. Like it, it looks so good though. Yes. That yes. was it's really interesting. They did an awesome job with that game. Yeah. For sure. It was really interesting though. But yeah, see, so now we get a couple games for you, so it was like peaking interest. Yeah. Who who would have thunk it, right? Who would have thunk? <laughs> who would have thunk it? Who would have thunk? Um so the other aspect that we were talking about this weekend, uh-huh. that's a good, interesting part about how limited run games has evolved and it's got me back into getting some of them was that they're not no longer doing the we're live at 10 a.m. and you have two seconds to back right. it and you have open pre-orders for the regular edition releases not your special limiteds but your regular editions now you leave it open on the switch and you get some backers yeah i mean that's a super genius way to do it it's hard so like we want to keep some because we understand like there's different collectors out there like some don't feel the compulsion where they have to get every single thing um, which is good. I think that's healthier for our market in general and longevity of our company. Yeah. Um, so we want to kind of change, stay as true as we can to both. So like collectors and limited editions, like we'll still keep limited in quantity so they have like that, that really rare collectability feel to it. Um, but for people that are looking to get in so there's not as much of a barrier to entry is that we're definitely rolling to the pre-order, especially if we switch stuff. Yeah. There just seems to be a higher demand and I just hate here when people like take the time to go and do it and they did everything that they can from there and they still miss out, you know. We got beat up for that for the first year or two, and like, re- like retroactively, we probably should have a little bit, because I thought, you can see that people would spend the time to come in, and then you just get burned like two or three times. That's it. They're not coming back. Yeah. You can't I collect mean, them if you can't get one. You know I mean, hell, you talk about Shantae. I got burned on Shantae. I got burned on Night <laughs> Trap. I got burned on Double Dragon 2, River City Ransom, Melee, NES Edition. 
I got I got burned on the field. Fun fun story on Shante is we actually ended up we didn't just burn people, we lost like 100, 200 in the mail. We learned a hard lesson on that one. That was back in the days when it was just me, Josh, and Douglas, and me and my girlfriend at the time were actually in like a conference room backing those. And we got like one combination mixed up before we had a more sophisticated shipping system, and it got permanently stuck in French customs. So if you're in France today, there's probably about 100 to 200 copies of Shante sitting in French customs still to this day. So, so someday there's going to be a warehouse of limited <laughs> yeah. games that get unveiled and drop the collectible price of Shante in the future. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> So if you get a copy, you want to get rid of it. If that French Customs ever releases, get your copy away. So my mentality behind why you kind of changed the switch, though, my thoughts were, well, it probably costs a little more to produce the actual text since it's kind of a memory card board in the it switch. It definitely does. So, yeah. like, it only makes sense to me that you would want to know the exact numbers of your pre-orders so you can actually have a concrete number you could invest in, whereas with the PS4, it's easy to slap discs together. Yeah. And I mean, it's, um, that's absolutely, that's on the nose. That's one of the things we definitely considered on the manufacturing side. <laughs> Nintendo has a lot of nuances compared to some other developers. Uh, you have to order to the, uh, the closest thousand. So if you need one overset, like you need 7,001, you need to order 8,000. That's nice. Um, <laughs> so the good thing is that's leaving us extra copies because even though it's open pre-order, you know, there's still people that are like, oh man, I didn't know this was coming out. Do you have any extra copies? Yeah. So it's not a bad thing. And you bring some over here to conventions and sells them here at the booths. Yeah. Like that's yeah. literally it. Like that's how I got my River City ransom this weekend. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's, it's totally rad. So like yeah. one of the coolest things about learning about uh, more about the collecting community and working for somebody that is a hardcore collector, uh, the reason I think we've been successful and it finds that niche is just because of the amount of time that he spent thinking about like how would I want to line this up on my shelf? Like how would I want to display this? Yeah. So things like spine numbering, things like consistency on how everything's organized on the spine. Spine numbering. I don't know what that means. There you go. <laughs> Exhibit A. Yeah, I, I even number my own releases based on my <laughs> main releases. Like, but it's, I, it's it's super like it's the same wavelength that a lot of collectors yeah, are on. Yeah, and, and, and I see how it induces kind of that OCD element because even now, like if I have one thing disorganized or out of my collection of the games we put out, I'll get like kind of like ramped up and I'll run around the office and be like, "Who borrowed this? Put it back on the shelf. I'm missing number 17. Like, yeah. So the I totally, I'm sorry, I totally get it. So the interesting thing was is that so. The complete NES was my second release, but my first release was released in Europe, right? So the complete NES has a number two on the spine. There's never been a number one on the spine until this re-release of Hidden Gaming Gems that just hit Kickstarter. That's going to be the number one on the spine of the book. Man, that's like the Star Wars model. It's like we're going to start in the middle, go forward, and then work yeah. backwards, huh? Well, like, I already had it released, but it was with a, with the actual publisher, and I didn't have as much control. So, right. like, that, now that I'm a publishing company, I have complete control. This is exactly how I want it, how I would want it as a collector. So it's like, it's the perfect way to release it. So... Like, eventually, like, with each book, it, I will have a definitive edition of them where it's, like, perfect. So, like, as I'm releasing the final printings of books, it gets to, like, a perfect feng shui, as you may say. Wow. I just can't believe how much time and effort you put in these books, man. Like, it's crazy. I open one up, and it's 
like you said, I literally feel like it's like, how much is this going to put my bag over 50 pounds and surcharge me on the on the flight home? It might do that. I mean, then you just take the TSAs and hit them with it. Right, right, right. <laughs> like, knock them out. It'd be all good, I man. I go to the back room and then do the extra security check on you. Yeah, they'll do an extra security check and then they'll read the book and be sidetracked for like an hour because they'll be looking over the Super Nintendo book. Right. So stuck with them. What's the next project on you, man? You seem like you have boundless energy. I, like, I, I just can't believe you put out so many books already today, but like, are you already got your hands into something that's next? Oh, yeah. I'm always working concurrently on at least three or four books at the same time. Jeez. And people ask me, like, why do I do that? And it's literally like if you've heard of writer's block. Right. So say I have to write about every single game for a system. So if I hit a, a peak and I don't want to write about that system, let me move on to the next book, do some layouts a little bit, do a little bit of artwork, and then I can go back to that once the, the writer's block subsides. So what I'm working on is I'm finishing up the Hidden Gaming Gems book that was funded on Kickstarter. So that's fully funded. It's still up for pre-order and you know people listening can still back in pre-order and still write in the book because contributors can write in my books and get published alongside with everybody else, um, which is a really cool thing I do. Um, and so I already have 380 pages done that I've already written. I'm just waiting on the contributors and then I'll lay that out. And then I'm working on, when I do the complete series, I let the backers vote what they want to see next. So they want to see Sega Genesis. So I'm doing a complete Sega Genesis and Mega Drive book. That one's gonna take a. It's already it's laid out. I already laid it out. out. I already laid it out. Now I'm playing and writing. Jeez. Yep. It'll take me probably a couple years though to get through the entire library, including Japanese Mega Drive that don't require Japanese and all the 400 plus Ombre games on the Genesis. There's a lot. Yeah. Um, and that's gonna take me a while. And I'm working on those two. I'm working on a book for Walter Day. And it's already. I've been working on that one for like three years now though. It's almost done. The Walter Day book should be good to go. Maybe this fall, actually. Um, and I'm working on a April Fool's book. April Fool's Day, I'm going to do a single day Kickstarter for something <laughs> that nobody thinks can have a complete book and be worthwhile, and it's going to be badass. It's going to be amazing. You just talked to me about that the other oh, day. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. It we, might be red only with black backgrounds. Red only <laughs> system. Like, crazy, crazy system. That everyone's like, oh, how are you going to do that? It only has X amount of games released for it. I'm like, you'll see. You'll um, see. We were trying to do something cool for April Fool's Day. I think we are looking at, like, My Name is Mayo. And I, I want to say, like, if we can get it, now that we're starting to do the uh, the FPV stuff, like, if yeah. we can get, like, we just worked with uh, Tom Zito a little bit on uh, some of the Night Trap that we just did on the Switch yeah. side. But he might actually give, give us a Marky's Mark, make my video. Uh, so if we can bring that one back, that would probably be our ideal. It would be crazy to have some like random game like that yeah. for like an April Fool's. Crazy. Game. We picked it up and opened it. That's actually not a Batman game. I made fun of it originally, but yeah. we were thunk. Marky Mark. So, so this past year, my April Fool's joke was just a thing on my site. And I said, I'm going to do the complete Switch. <laughs> and it's not even out yet, like the whole, the whole library. And people went crazy, like, oh my god, I want a Switch book. So I actually incorporated the Switch into my Hidden Gaming Gems because Hidden Gaming Gems is covering every generation from Pong all the way. So my original release, when it was released in 2012, went up to PS3. And it was like 3D Dot Game Heroes was the, like, the newest type of game that was like Legend of Zelda. That was the, the newest game for the system. Now it's all the way up to the Switch. We're, we're a couple generations past now. And so we, that was the seventh generation. Now we're into the ninth generation of gaming. And so like... It's making the, me feel old right now. Yeah. Ouch. So for the Switch 
some of the games that are candidates to be released as a hidden game gem in my book, I wrote about Slain on the Switch. I'm going to of Slain. It's like a 16 to 32-bit action platformer that's based on a metal head that's doing headbanging, and you take your battle axe and your sword and you chop demons and, and zombies and they go bloody and explode in the rocks of bits and it's like a slay when you die and you die a lot in the game and it's really really freaking cool that's like a game that's a candidate and like nobody knows about it because it hit right when the switch eShop started to overflood just, yeah just started to completely saturated exactly and actually I think it was a European physical switch game releaser released a physical copy of Slain which I just found out like last week yeah. I was like, oh, there's a physical really? release. Well, shit, I need to get that now. <laughs> it's like, I'm not buying them out in Europe because of all the shipping fees. Oh, yeah. It's like ridiculous. But yeah, people always talk about shipping fees, man. It's crazy. Those like taxes, duties, fees. People don't play around with the tax and fees when it comes to shipping. It's expensive. Well, shipping one of these giant homes yeah. out to Europe costs $75 each. What? <laughs> one book. That's not the cost of the book. That's just the shipping cost for me. Why? And if I do the cost of insurance, they sometimes, have, depending on the country, have to pay a fee when they bought, when they get the book from their country. They charge them yeah, extra yeah. money to get the book. Like, it's you're talking hundreds of dollars to get one book from me. That's where it's like, I need a distributor in Europe, but like to ship everything to the distributor in Europe costs the same as if I ship them all individually to people. So it's like, it's a lose-lose at that point. Damn if you don't. So, so what I call that is when you're doing content, that's the next glass ceiling. You gotta hit these glass ceilings when you make stuff. You go from self-publishing to a publishing company to distribution to, like, now it's like, I gotta figure out international that doesn't cost an arm and a leg. Because people are doing it, but they're losing money. I want to do it so it's still fun. And I still can, you know, sell my books for $40 for a giant 630-page book. Yeah, like I want to be able to do that going forward. For a pretty good price, just for shipping, you're getting charged by like 150 to 200. That gets a little steep up. That's yeah. insane when, when the shipping's double the price of the book. <laughs> like, but the thing is, is that the book's so affordable that it's still cheaper than some other authors' books yeah. that are doing it because they're not publishing the book themselves. So, and that's the interesting thing is being the owner of your own business. So, how do you guys feel about owning? Limited run games, being your own entrepreneur. Man, it's a it's a blast, but you know, there's challenges there. That there's a lot of freedoms there for one. Like you know, yeah. it's really cool. Like you know, have somebody telling you can or can't do something. Like really, the sky's the limit. It's what you want to go after. Yeah. Um, but man, like the responsibility is like if you're gonna try and do something, like the responsibility's on you. Um, so it's really cool growing the company, but like every step of the way, like we're talking about those glass ceilings, yeah. we got to decide like how we wanted to play things out as we went on. You learn from your own mistakes. As long as you're doing that, you usually make every step just fine, and you learn a lot about yourself and the company. Well, um, and the thing is, is that like you're talking, the risk right. is on you, and the risk right. is on me. So if I make a miscalculation, there's a few grand now that I gotta work on and recover and figure out how to make it work. Yeah, so it was like, uh, man, we really put ourselves out there at the beginning. Like one of the, one of the, I think it's, it's actually pretty common for people that follow us now for them to know this. But originally, like we did this just to cover our own costs as a game studio for our next project. Yep. Um, and the owner of the company, Josh Barriers, actually put his house up um, as collateral. And wow. Like, we had like thirty or forty thousand dollars, essentially enough to operate for one more month. And our option was to either a game that didn't do well for us when it came out. It was a follow up to Breach and Clear. It was Breach and Clear Deadline. Yeah, it didn't do too great. And so we were in a position. It's like we take our last 
sum of money and operate for one more month and figure out a way to spike sales when we just go all in on this endeavor and do our first physical print. Um, and that's kind of <laughs> how we started, so. Holy yeah. shit. Yeah, man, so like running your own business is great and fun, but like, you definitely have to take a risk in the beginning sometimes. It'd be a little scary. Well, and that's just it. Like, if you didn't take that leap, then things wouldn't have gotten out of control to the point that they're at. Like, I mean, little did I know when I wanted to make a Nintendo collector's guide where it has a box art and a screenshot and a short description. Like, that was my idea back in 2010 that I wanted to do. And I just ended up, I was like, screw it. I'm going to do it myself, my own way. Um, little did I know that things were going to explode. And that's partially why I'm doing a Walter Day book. It's because Walter Day helped through me setting a super punch out world record, helped introduce me to the guy who does garbage pail kids, who did my cover art. And garbage then, pail and then you know, like they say the whole wives' tales don't judge a book by its cover, but everybody judges the book by its cover. <laughs> Every time. Every time. So it's like everybody saw that cover went crazy, backed it, went went insane, and then all of a sudden it exploded. Things continue to ramp up just like for you all you guys. Yeah. Like it just Keeps like getting crazier and crazier. Yeah, yeah. Crazier. If, you get, if you get lucky enough to get a momentum ball, you just gotta keep it rolling. Because as soon as it stops, it might not start again, you know? Well, and the thing is, is that I just, I'm gonna continue doing things and making it fun. And I think that's what you you guys are doing too now, is you're yeah. just trying to figure out how to make it logistically work. You know what I mean? Right, yeah. It's like, uh, we talk about the logistics. Like, that, I mean, it, it's my job is one of the more boring ones in the studio. I'm the one that deals with logistics and the numbers <laughs> and a lot of financial stuff, so. Um, I, I have a blast when we get to like, hey, let's brainstorm for a new collector's edition. That's where I have fun. And that's the cool thing. That's what excites me as a collector, too. Yeah. As I like to see the brand new collector's editions, what the heck you guys are doing, how you're going to connect it to our nostalgia. Right. Like, you got that one uh, Super Nintendo boxed release now, too. And yeah. I saw that, and I'm like, oh. Yeah, it's, a lot of those are usually Josh, man. Guy's really bright. It's insane. No, nothing knows like what's going to work other than the true collection themselves. Yeah. Um, and, that, and that's the thing, like, I completely get it. And, like, with some of mine, like, like this book right here, the Super Nintendo book, has a limited edition slipcase that it comes with, that I have, that I sold with the Kickstarter. And it's lenticular, like the old school collector cards. And it changes this book art, which is the drawn art from all the characters from the Super Nintendo, and goes into the 16-bit graphics of them, like, one-to-one. And it's like on a little TV That's that really it works, cool. and it's really awesome yeah. and super expensive to do. Did it right at cost? Like it cost me like twenty dollars a slipcase to do. <laughs> like like as much to like like almost as much to print the damn book. Like it's, it's crazy, ridiculous. Yeah. When you think about it, but it was super cool to do. And that half of the stuff that I do is because I can. Yeah, like yeah. like leather bound tome versions gilded in gold with multiple freaking bookmarkers. <laughs> I've done it. It costs four hundred dollars a book. I charge four hundred dollars a book. Charge what it costs because I, and it says it right on the thing at Kickstarter. I'm doing this because it, this ridiculously excessive tier because I can. That's it. <laughs> like it's just something to have out there. And I mean to me, and we were talking about pricing before, yeah. like I keep my books at an affordable price because I want everybody to be able to afford it and have it in their collection. If everybody supports it, then it's going to have a life of its own and it'll be there for going on forever. Right. And to me that's way cooler than 
you know, making an extra 20 bucks out of people by charging 60, which is, honestly, people are charging 60 to 80 for a book my size. And it's like, but at 40, I would come to a convention and go, oh, 40 bucks, no problem. Right. That's my thought. If I, Whenever I see a book that's awesome and it's like super cheap, I'm like, hell yeah, or $20 for like a different tie. That's, that's no brainer to me. That's what I call binge worthy. And yeah. you do that with the same way with your pricing. Yeah, yeah, it's a uh, compulsive purchase essentially is what we thought. Is like if we were walking through the store and we wanted to pick up a game, like what price do you think that would be the right price for us to pick something up and take a game along? Well, yeah, and you got to also work into like what it costs and everything too to make sure you meet your bottom line. Yeah. And it's like as long as I can meet the bottom line, like I'm, I'm good to go, man. For the few people we have in the audience, when we watch me put them to sleep, I can totally break down like how to come up with a profit margin. I'm yes. not going to do that. <laughs> All right, I'll, I'll do a countdown. Yeah. <laughs> Put everybody to sleep in about five it's minutes. classics. But the thing is, the mentality's a fine line, but keeping everything affordable, though, right. I think going forward is the key. And then working with other passionate gamers and people that just create new avenues for releases. Well, that's, that's the best thing about this industry the whole that I think attracts a lot of people that end up wanting to work at it and want to collect in it and all that yep. jazz is because... There's such awesome people that work in the collective community and in the game development community. Yep. Um, I first got their stories just get up to AAA level, but as far as the rest down on the indie scene <laughs> and the game collective scene, I've met nothing but good people. So, and so like, I feel like it's important when you work and serve that market, you got to think about like, what's the right thing to do, you know? Yeah. And I think that's another interesting thing you mentioned AAA. It's like at the publishing side, and at the, I consider publishing almost like record companies and movie companies, where like I talk to publishers and they're like, we'll give you 3%, and we do all the layouts, we do everything, yeah, you're gonna do it how we wanna do it, we'll give you 3%. If you sell like 2,000 copies, we'll, we'll get from you that, like 5 to 8%. It'll be great, you get 8%. It's like, or do I do 100%, I take the risk, I'll take it to Kickstarter, and I get to do everything in how I want to do it. Right. And then I make a way cooler book than anybody could conceive because you have these limitations as a, that the publishers had because they want they have all these other ideas of what they think collectors want. But I'm a collector. Right. I think I know what collectors want too. I know what I would like, and that's what I do. Yeah, that's perfect. And that's how it works. You know, every time you try and go that route, like, I remember back when we were in the early days when we were... Like back in the time period that the house is still up for Josh. Oh, God. Um, <laughs> like, we were looking at options. It's like, is there anybody out there that's willing to give us money? And everybody wanted way too much control for what money they're willing to put in. Yeah. So I think that whenever you're doing something like this and you're, and you're confident, you feel like, hey, I'm a collector, I'm doing something for collectors, just, just go for it, you know? Exactly. And Nobody's I mean, going to do as well as you. And, and taking that risk of not taking investors is an interesting aspect, too. And yeah, yeah. Some that you made a smart decision going forward for sure. Like back when I was still bartending like three days a week in the evenings and stuff, I kinda wish somebody had taken that invest early on, but it all worked out. <laughs> I mean I still work a full time job Monday through Friday. So drill sergeant. You don't need to know that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have a hat on, I'm good. <laughs> All right, Ben, so let's wrap this up. So yeah. where can people find you? I don't think they know your website, Ben. Um, so our website, limiterungames.com. Oh, easy, oh. Easy. <laughs> We try to keep everybody up to date. Right now, typically, anytime yeah. you go there, we have an open pre-order on something. Always. Um, cool stuff coming up. We got Golf Story, Ukulele upcoming. Nice. I'm going to be careful because I can't spoil something. So I'll he, stick with those two. So he I'll has a lot of cool them. stuff that he's yeah. like, kind of like... Don't talk about this, but this is awesome. And I'm like, yeah, yeah. nice. 
Yeah, we're excited, man. It's, uh, it's going to be a great year. It sounds like you're going to be having a pretty busy year yourself. I'm always busy and fun. I'm OCD, so it yeah. keeps me sane. And so <laughs> my books and everything is at HagensAlley.com. This will be recorded and be up on a, on a podcast as well. Um, a VGBS, Video Game Bullshit. Anywhere you can look it up. It's on multiple podcasts and websites that people share. We have thousands of listeners a week. Um, it's pretty fun. And also the Hagen's Alley Books Podcast, that's where this episode will go at. And that's just starting up. It just gives me an excuse to shoot the shit with people I've known for a couple years. Yeah, and yeah. Get, to, get to catch up on things and go over what you guys are going. Because typically we see each other in the convention, like, hey, what's up? And yeah. it's like two seconds. Otherwise, and then now we can <laughs> dig a little deeper and just like, yeah. oh, I didn't know you were going with this. Hey, can I help you here? Or can I help you here? And then we actually, you know, can makes the things work even smoother yeah absolutely. super fun man well yeah. thanks thanks again ben hey, thanks and thanks for everybody for coming and listening to us i appreciate it at the end of the convention so thanks everybody appreciate it thanks guys